0: go to the Lord in prayer again. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you so much that we can trust you, simply trust you with every part of us, Lord. I just ask that you would um, stir up our hearts this morning as we hear from your word. I pray that as a church, we would make a big deal about the Lord Jesus, that we would want to worship Jesus with all our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 1 again. And this week, we're going to be focusing on verses 10 to 17. Now, this begins, this chunk, verse 10, begins the first major section in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now, you remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to address 10 different main, 10 big picture, different topics. Some topics are topics that he's heard reports of, Going on there, so we'll see this week, some from Chloe's household have informed him of quarrels. There's some other reports that he's heard. And then in chapter 7, there's a switch. And he starts addressing some things that they've written him about, some topics they have questions on. So, ten topics. And this chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, is the first Topic that he's addressing. And it's a problem he's heard about. They didn't write him about it. Chloe's people have told him, Paul, they are there's problems here. Okay? And these we're dividing, we're divided over who to follow. Different church leaders. Some people follow one church leader, some follow another. So this whole section, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 21, deals with this topic of division over church leaders. But one thing that can be tricky when you read through this section is that Paul covers a lot of ground when he's talking about this topic. He he pulls out all the stops in trying to help the Corinthians think rightly about church leaders and about The way of Jesus. So, to set the stage, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk a little bit about the context of the church in Corinth. The background. It'd be like describing to somebody who wasn't from Granville what happened in Granville. What's Granville all about? So, one of the things that made this topic of church leaders really challenging was... How things went down in Corinth. And not just Corinth, but in the ancient world of Paul's day. In that world, and in Corinth especially, public speaking was a big deal. Men would spend years studying how to perfect the art of speaking persuasively (coughs) and really charismatically, passionately on any topic you can imagine. Politics, religion, sports, science, architecture, medicine, relationships, every town would have their favorite speakers. Man, you should hear that guy. He can really bring it. Wait till he gets going on religion or whatever it is. They would have their favorite speakers. And Corinth was no different. And in this ancient world of fascination with the who's who of speaking, like a whole celebrity culture. Of speakers. There was a constant jockeying for top place in the eyes of the city and even the world. There was like a whole little corporate ladder that you could climb up, getting bigger and bigger and more and more famous. And so, what would happen would be these ancient cities would have a constant stream of public speakers. Some of them would set up shop in a town and they'd be like, this town's guy. But there was always a chance you could be toppled. The heavyweight champion could be dislodged, right, by a rookie of the year who would come into town. And they would, Corinth would have been familiar with this. These public speakers would roll into town, and you might have heard them before, you might not have. And they'd come with their whole entourage of, of students called disciples. And these disciples would be following their master, their teacher, and they'd go around town and they'd put up flyers in the library and on the telephone poles. Well, they weren't telephone poles. But wherever there were opportunities, they'd announce Thursday night in the park, be there, right? Teacher so-and-so is going to give a speech. And then the night would arrive, and if they'd done their job well, there'd be... A packed audience. If not, it'd be really shameful. Twelve people, you know? And crickets. But sometimes these preachers, they would have their one hit. These teachers would have their one hit wonder. You know, the thing that they were just known for talking about. But the really good ones, they would ask the audience. Hey, what do you want me to talk about? And the audience would suggest the topic. Or they would spend a lot of time in the marketplace listening. What are these people? What's going to really scratch their ears? What's going to really be good here? And then they would preach on that topic. But usually, the better the better the teacher, there was no notes. What I'm doing right now, reading from a manuscript to make sure that I say what I want to say and don't say something, that would have been taboo, right? This is... Off the cup from years and years of practice. And the, the more skill they had, the better praise they would get. People would give them money and praise and fame and more speaking invitations. They would have had, I mean, imagine, if these guys had the internet, they would have had a field day, right? Now, the disciples of these speakers often had. Parents that paid for them to study under these traveling speakers, big money, and the students of these teachers, they would try to dress like their teacher, do their hair like their teacher, walk like their teacher, talk exactly like him. They were carbon. They meant their goal. Why would you pay ten thousand dollars to study under this person? Because you want to be a carbon copy of him, so that someday you might be able to take. Following him, take top spot. And man, if somebody else said something bad about your favorite teacher, the gauntlet was thrown down. Things got ugly fast. There's even records that we have of students that heard somebody say something bad about their teacher and they commanded their slaves to go beat them up and the slaves did such a good job beating this poor person up that the person died, right? It's like rivalries at a big sports game, like when Brazil plays Argentina. People die. That's kind of how, like these rivalries. For them, it felt really good to be connected to somebody big and important. They would name drop all the time. I'm a student of so-and-so. Well, I'm a student of so-and-so, right? Who you are, who you're connected to, was a huge deal alright so it's into this scene now so picture this scene there's a new kid on the block he comes rolling into town his name's Paul he calls himself a sent one an apostle (coughs) Um, and he comes as a teacher and he's preaching his gospel and he's preaching it free of charge He didn't pontificate on topics suggested to him by the crowd. He didn't take a poll. What do you want me to talk about? No, he's got a canned message. Jesus. Every time. Let me talk to you about Jesus. And he's not preaching his own word. He quotes this thing called the Torah and the prophets of Israel constantly. Saying that they predicted this Jesus. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus and the judgment that's coming by this Jesus. He's obsessed with Jesus. He doesn't want to talk about politics unless it's Jesus' king. He doesn't want to talk about religion unless it's Jesus' Lord. He doesn't want to talk about medicine unless it's the new creation will bring healing. Like This is Paul's M.O. He rolls into town and he talks about Jesus for free. Other churches pay him to do it. And when he preached, he left spectators shaking their heads in scorn and confusion. They came expecting one thing, and they left, like, what the hell was that? What a loser this Jesus was. How weak of a God do you have to be to be crucified by humans? You want to follow a crucified God? What in the world? Listen to Paul's own words about this in Second 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. He says, So it was with me, brothers, when I came to you, I did not come like those teachers. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of how God... For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. I'm not going to talk about any other topic that you're so used to hearing about all the time. Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you, not with great fanfare, look at that, verse 3. In weakness, with great fear and trembling. Fear, Fear of the Lord, right? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I threw out the rhetoric rule book. No, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I touched people and they got healed. <laughs> I spoke and people got saved. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul, he went out of his way to avoid any activity that smelled of what these Corinthians were used to. Because Jesus isn't just an idea to be tossed around in the marketplace of ideas. Jesus isn't just a topic... To be talked about for money. Jesus is a king. To be worshipped and followed and obeyed. And so Paul called himself a sent one. I've been sent by this king. I'm an ambassador of the king. From a different kingdom. Not of this world. And the ambassador is saying, be reconciled to the king. That's that's Paul's message. He shows up in these towns. He's like, "I'm I'm not doing that. I'm doing a completely different thing. I'm a herald announcing the arrival of a king one day. He came, and he's coming again. And he didn't call the men, this is amazing, he didn't call the men with him, and the women with him, disciples, right? As the teachers of the day did. He called himself a disciple. He even called himself a slave. I'm a doulas of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. Like, wait, this, this slave, how did you get to be a teacher? And he says, I'm a disciple. And he calls his followers, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine that? Paul's teaching. And he's, he's surrounded by the people that came with him. And, uh, and, and he says, uh, Sister Phoebe, can you, can you give me a drink of water? I'm parched. I'm like, Sis- sister, what, what is going on here? And then he turns to the guy on his right, and the guy on his right is obviously a slave. <laughs> you know? Apathos, um, right? I mean, Philemon, Philemon the slave. You yeah, so what's going on? And Paul didn't fit the rhetoric, or the, the, the pattern of the day. And so Paul preached, people got saved. And then he left. And after Paul left, the way that the culture did things, the way that they were used to living, started to seep in and shape the church. So that's why Paul is writing chapters 1 to 4. He's saying, remember how I was when I was there? What's happening? Basically, the Corinthians were dividing themselves up in Corinth based on who they really liked to listen to. For example, Apollos. He was a favorite preacher of the early church. That guy could bring the fire. When Apollos preached, people heard, people responded, people got saved. He was brilliant. He was. We read about him at the end of Acts chapter 18. He was able to reason very persuasively with people and lead them to faith. The Apostles Paul's style was different. His letters were very, very powerful. We'll read him explaining this later on in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But when Paul writes, um, he he shows, but when Paul shows up in person, he's weak. He's frail. He sounds like a frail old Jewish rabbi. I mean, these these public speakers of the day, many of them, you wanted to gain a really good following. You didn't just work on your rhetoric, but you you worked on your outside appearance. You were shredded. You worked out like a Greek champion, and you had a robust figure, very charismatic personality. Imagine this hunched, hunched-over rabbi come up who looks like his body looks like he's been through the meat shredder. He's been beaten countless times, left for dead. He looks like he spent half his life in jail because he has, and he rolls into town it's like, <laughs> dude, what, are you, what? I mean, he probably just drew a crowd just by walking into town. He had eye problems, couldn't see well, and came across with a gentle and humble demeanor. He calls his followers family. He's dirt poor. I mean, this guy is so different, and yet despite his appearance and demeanor, the power of God shows up. And people get saved. Not by the power of his personality, but of the Holy Spirit, and those who had been led to the Lord by Paul in the church, and even baptized by him, apparently I'm going to read the passage in a second. I'm, I'm just creating a backdrop, taking a long time to create this backdrop. This isn't the set in the stage for the next month or so as we work through these chapters. Okay, Paul apparently had some fanboys in the church; they loved him, and yet others perhaps Jews in the church, were really drawn to the teachings in the style of the Apostle Peter, called Cephas. That's his other name. And some really liked Apollos, and were drawn to his teachings. And this is getting to be a mess. Quarrels were breaking out between the so-called disciples in each camp, just like the quarrels that the Corinthians would have been used to all the time. Man, I don't know why you like Paul so much. He looks horrible. You could really use a different hair color, whatever. And it's like, well, if you only followed Apollos or Peter, and these folks were fighting, and they were looking more and more like the culture. And Paul is writing to combat this. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, up to that up through chapter 4, here's the big picture of what Paul's going to do. Alright? Remember, these four chapters are mostly written to combat this problem. And so here's the big picture of what Paul's going to do. Why shouldn't Christians divide? And Paul says, I'm going to give them every reason I've got why Christians shouldn't divide up over these church leaders. In verses 10 to 17, which we're going to circle around, just focus on for a few minutes at the end of our time today. Paul's going to argue that the very gospel about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, the king, it demands that everybody unite around Jesus and only Jesus. That's the most central reason not to divide. The second reason, he starts in verse 18 and it goes all the way to the end, chapter 2, verse 16. And Paul is starting to say, listen, you guys are thinking about leadership all wrong. Your idea of leadership has been deeply shaped by your culture's idea of power and Wisdom. And you need to rethink how you think about power and how you think about wisdom by looking at the cross of Jesus where you see the power of God and the wisdom of God on display in the weakness of the Son of God dying for sins. And in the power of the cross, this bloody torture instrument to defeat the powers of darkness. So Paul's going to say the way that God's wisdom and God's power works turns the world's wisdom on its head. And you need to get that. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he says, Christians, if you really have the Holy Spirit, then you are not going to be bragging about church leaders. You've got to think completely different about church leaders. Instead of propping up church leaders and boasting about them, you've got to view them as your servants. They serve you the word about Jesus. They are servants of Jesus. So rethink church leaders. Rethink wisdom and power. And remember the cross and the gospel is what of Jesus is who you unite around. So that's where we're going in chapters 1 to 4. So with all of this in mind, we're just going to look at his first reason today. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, he writes this. I appeal to you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you said. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me. Here, there's the report that he's responding to. They've informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says i follow paul another says i follow apollos another i follow cephas that's peter's name and still another i follow christ and paul responds is christ divided was paul crucified for you were you baptized into the name of paul like i baptized you in the name of paul and paul and paul no I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So this morning's message, two points. and chapters or verses 10 to 17 the unifying gospel of the Lord makes it so you shouldn't divide right so the unifying gospel of the Lord and the unifying power of the cross so first the unifying gospel of the Lord Jesus friends we are to be Jesus people that's at the heartbeat what Paul is saying here Jesus died for us Jesus rose for us Jesus lives for his church Jesus is our king so Christians are Jesus people. That's why Paul appeals to these Christians. In the name of Jesus, I appeal to you. Stop dividing over one other teachers. But you be united in mind and thought. Now it's really important, I think, to notice Paul's not saying that Christians are to think the same about how to play a soccer game or how to brush your teeth best. Go in circles. Go up and down. You should all think the same about everything. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying Christians must totally agree in mind or thought on the best way to clean a carburetor or whatever you can think. Any insert something you wish people would agree on. He's not saying every Christian should be a carbon copy of every other Christian. Christians disagree about millions of things all over the world. And there are ways of disagreeing and still showing each other love and respect and care that are good, and there's bad ways of disagreeing on a topic that show each other disrespect and unkindness. But Paul's not talking about working through general disagreements in the body of Christ here. He's calling for unity in mind and thought about who Christians say they follow. There shouldn't be disagreement there in speech. Or in practice, it should be clear that Christians all over the world, whether they be in Nigeria or Kenya or Sierra Leone or the United States or United Kingdom, Christians follow Jesus Christ. That should be clear. Look how he says it in verse 10. Paul wants them to all agree in what they say. Literally, speak the same. And we know he's not calling Christians to be robots and say the same canned things about every topic you could ever say something about because in verse 12 he clarifies what he means. So look down in verse 12. This is where he kind of clarifies. He says they are not speaking the same about who they follow. And this is the problem. One says he follows Paul. One speaks I follow Paul. So speak the same. Here's what I mean. One speaks I follow Paul. One speaks, I follow Apollos. One speaks, he pulls out the real trump card. I follow Jesus. Whoa. <laughs> we want to be like you. Well, Paul's going to agree, I think, with the I follow Jesus camp. We're going to see that. Paul says, I wasn't crucified for you. Was Paul crucified for you? No. With, I didn't pay for your sins. You weren't baptized into my name. You're Jesus people. This is huge. Denominations of Christians, different denominations, they can divide, they disagree about many smaller things. But all true Christians, wherever they live, no matter what language they speak, we must unite around the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. Now, there are causes for division. When people start to redefine who Jesus is and what he has done. That is cause for division. We see that show up in 1 Corinthians 15, where people are saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's a redefinition of Christianity. That's false. That is grounds for division. We divide from those who deny the central core of who Jesus is. He's a risen Lord, not a dead Lord, right? Right? There's another reason to divide that shows up in 1 Corinthians 5. When somebody who says, I follow the Lord, is actually following the devil by the way they live their life, we divide. No part in the works of darkness. But where people believe in and follow the real Jesus, who was really crucified and really raised for our sins, we rally around Jesus. Now, we'll circle back around and apply this a little bit at the end of our time, but I just want to mention, this is one reason that, as your pastor, and Carl as well, we don't make a big deal about being affiliated with the Southern Baptist denomination, okay? We don't put Southern Baptist on our door um, it's, not what we, it's not the first thing we want to be known for. We don't even have Baptist in our name. We, we are the church of the new creation. We are new creation in Christ. Not that it's wrong to call your church a Baptist church, but for us, that can. You know, we know for some people that can carry unhelpful connotations. We just want to be known as a church that is the. We're Jesus people. We love Jesus, we're grateful for the support and the encouragement of the different associations that we have as a church our treasuring christ together church planning network and the southern baptist convention the send of england network very grateful for those folks and for their encouragement over the years but first and foremost we don't we we want to wear the jesus t-shirt that's who we serve as a church we follow jesus now let's look at the second point the unifying power of the cross so we unite under the name of Jesus and we unite under the power of the cross. Friends, Paul writes in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The good news about Jesus is what saves people. The power of the gospel is not found in the power of a teacher's wisdom or his tongue or his dynamic personality. See that in 1 Corinthians 1 seventeen. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, human-type wisdom and eloquence, because he will go on and say there is a wisdom. We'll look at that next week. Lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. So Jesus didn't command Paul to preach with clever, skilled, educated, sophisticated speech aimed at impressing the audience of the day so that they're like, wow, this guy can bring it. We're going to listen to him. We're going to follow Jesus because he's amazing. Paul. No. That would empty the power of the cross. Completely empty it of power and put their salvation resting on the power of Paul's personality. This doesn't mean Paul, when he taught, didn't try to be clear or compelling. He didn't, it didn't mean he did not reason with people, try to persuade them. We can read about him doing that in the book of Acts. It didn't mean that he went out of his way to speak in confusing and logically contradictory ways. But in contrary, in contrast to the constant barrage of teachers in that day, Paul was very different. One commentator that I like, his name's David Garland. He says this. He says, Paul was not called to be, and he has a word, a phrase monger. Somebody who's just constantly using phrases cleverly and twisting ways of saying things. He was not called to be a phrase monger who overwhelms his audience with an eloquence that is in an end in and it of itself. Being eloquent to be eloquent. Many of the teachers of the day did not care at all whether what they were saying was true. They just wanted you to clap and give them money and your attention for the next time. Their performances were a bit like a beautiful movie that's just incredibly done. And you say, wow, that was an amazing movie like when I first watched the movie Avatar. Some people watch Avatar like dozens of times. Maybe you're one of them. I'm not saying that it's a sin or not, but when Avatar, the movie first came out in 3D, maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, but a lot of people did go and watch it in the theaters. Whoa, this is amazing. Well done. But when you start to peel back, what is the message of this movie? There's nothing of substance. It's actually a pretty dark Eastern religious message of oneness with the world and earth worship. So, in contrast, the gospel that Paul preached is much more like a low-budget film performed by rough, physically unattractive actors, but it's a film that has such a shocking and powerful conclusion to it a man on a bloodstained stained cross then dies and rises again, like it's a, it's a messy message. That it leaves some people offended. They don't forget that one. It leaves some people confused, and it leaves those who are being saved weeping for joy. A bloody cross and a risen God-man who calls a motley crew of fishermen and ex-prostitutes to be his family, forgives their sins, promises to return to judge the earth, to usher in the fullness of new creation. That was a shocking message. And Paul was living proof of it. A murderer come to faith in Christ. Another huge difference in Paul's preaching of the gospel versus the teaching of the day is that these teachers were actually trying to gain the admiration and the of the crowds by their teaching and they were trying to attract people to them and I've already said that but I just want to make it clear again Paul, he wasn't trying to be the point he didn't want you to be focused and become a, disi- a disciple of Paul he wanted you to stand amazed at Jesus for Paul the gospel did the work in people's lives he, Peter, Apollos, they were just stewards, servants of the gospel. And the Christians who trusted in Jesus weren't disciples of Paul. They were disciples of Jesus and family with Paul. So now as we move to our conclusion, let's try to get practical for a few minutes. What does this mean for us? Well, I think we live in a world that is very much like Paul's world in some ways. And the world that was like Corinth. We live in a sex-saturated celebrity culture that obsesses with things like how many likes did that video get? How many views did that get? We're obsessed with the best brands, brand name and on and on. And the internet has made this all encompassing. People can go into fame overnight on YouTube or on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. It's called going viral, right? The, the teachers of Paul today—I mean, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go viral before the internet. If they only had known about TikTok, they—you know—or whatever it was—they would have loved it. They—you better believe they would have been using it. People can go viral, and it doesn't have to be because they have a powerful message. No, it can be for a whole host of different reasons, including them doing something really immoral or stupid and videoing it. And what's sad is that the Christian world has, in many ways, copied the secular world with our own obsession with celebrity preachers and favorite teachers and favorite authors And favorite conference speakers. Now, it is not wrong for a Christian to be really helped by a particular pastor's teaching on the internet or even in person. I know Carl and I have both been blessed and encouraged and helped by the preaching and the teaching and the writings of Pastor Tim Keller, who's in New York City. He's been a blessing to me. I've been shaped online and in books and in person by a dozen other guys that you can mention. Some living, some with the Lord now. But, we must be wise. When we give people a voice into our lives, whether through their books or through their teachings, we can start to become more and more impressed with them and follow them and quote them over and over. And over time, we start to become disciples of men and not followers of the Lord Jesus. And that has a host of dangerous implications. For example, if the reason that you became a Christian was because you were swayed by the incredible preaching of a radio preacher or a dynamic personality of a passionate Christian leader, and they're the reason you came to know Jesus, you can thank God for them. But if their passion And their clever persuasion is what you've based your faith upon. Your faith is only as strong as that passion. And if you meet somebody who's more passionate and more compelling and more persuasive, at least it seems to you, then your faith might fall apart. But if they were just a channel to Jesus... And through them you've found Jesus compelling and Jesus attractive and Jesus amazing. And you've received and tasted his grace and you said, grace is amazing. That will keep you no matter what. And if that powerful preacher or teacher is dead and in the grave and they can't be passionate and anymore, you don't have to just keep reading the books trying to get excited about Jesus. You can get excited about Jesus every day in his word. Another danger that has happened in our, a tragic thing that has happened in our culture is that um, m- massive influential celebrities often fall. Fall terribly and tragically. I don't know how many of you read the news, but you may know some of these stories. There's been a lot recently. One recent example that is has been all over the news worldwide is that the Christian preacher and teacher, a man named Rabbi Zacharias, he recently died. He's a man who led thousands of people to faith in Christ. He preached to millions of people over his life in dozens of countries, and yet he had kept a secret and a horrifying double life sexual immorality unrepented of and unconfessed his evil ways have hurt many people more than we will ever know and he kept many of his victims in silence over the years because of the powerful intensity of his personality and influence if you say something you could bring this vast mass, massive christian empire that i built Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, you could bring it down if you say something, right? Tragically, those who were disciples of Ravi, who ran his ministry, many of them were swayed by his incredible, powerful personality and his amazing gift for teaching and for holding large audiences spellbound. And by their own admission now, as they're sharing about this, we were blinded. To his dark side, power can blind, powerful personalities can blind us to the truth. And they refused to believe the allegations about him, even when they arose before his death. And they even demonized his victims, who came forward with claims of abuse. They spoke horrible things about these women. They're just after money, and they would sue them. They went after many of them financially, financially. They would rather circle the wagons and protect the brand of Ravi from critical reviews than open their minds to the truth. True, truth was eclipsed by a desire to save the brand. And they're still dealing as a ministry with the tragic consequences of their failures, even now. The, you, know, you watch their apology videos. It's heart It's heartbreaking. Like the rug, everything that they work for it feels like it was a lie. And many of them are just utterly shattered. They don't know where to turn. They're trying to pick up the pieces of their faith. And thankfully, because Ravi Zacharias did preach the true gospel, I believe my heart, most of these folks, maybe you were blessed by his ministry. I was. I read multiple of his books. Most of these folks will be okay. Because the gospel that Ravi preached is still good news, even if Ravi Zacharias was evil. And Jesus is still mighty to save, even if he is lost. We don't know. God is sovereign, and he is a just judge. The judge of all the earth will do right. And the gospel still is the power of God, even though Ravi is in the grave and his books have been pulled from the shelves and his powerful legacy causes a shudder minds the gospel is the power of God but I think as we move forward into the 21st century in our evangelical powerhouse ministries many of them are coming crashing down we must rally together to do better we need to come together around the brand of Jesus and the power of his good news we must train our hearts to look through everything that our culture gravitates towards when it rates what is significant and worth elevating. We've got to look through the crowds and the book deals. This book is worth it. It's had a 200, 200 million whatever, copies sold. We must look through the lights. We've got to look through the noise and the fog machines. We've got to look through the impassioned preaching. Even if I even as I preach to you passionately right now, lifting my hands, look through it, and look at the content. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, our King. We must not glory in human leaders. We must not boast in human teachers, quoting them constantly, singing their praises. They are but men. Christians, we are not to be fanboys of any particular teacher or ministry or politician Or movement. We are Jesus people. We have one king. Christ. We have one savior. He is Christ. We have one gospel. Jesus died and rose for you. And you're a sinner. So that's good news. Because he can forgive you. From your sins. And the power of this gospel is found in preaching. The foolish weakness of the cross. Of Jesus Christ. So friends in your mind's eye. Behold, your king, Jesus, our mighty champion, naked and bleeding, hanging on a cursed tree, crying out, forgive them, Father. That is the power of God for salvation. That's what power looks like. That bruised, dying, weak, bleeding man is the hope of the world. That brutal cross, that instrument of torture, that is the wisdom of God on display. On the cross, God himself takes the punishment for human evil, satisfying the justice that the world was due. Sin is dealt with, and on the cross, as we see justice, this is what punishment of sin looks like. We also see this is what forgiveness looks like. Mercy to those who turn There in the darkness, abandoned by his friends, weak and dying, Jesus was a spectacle. And he cried out, It is finished. And he entrusted his spirit into the hands of his father, in whose hands alone are the power of resurrection, is the power of resurrection life. And so as Christians, we've got to beware of the brilliant light's in the fanfare, the fog machines, the microphones, you know, Karen and my mom which had a wonderful conference, right? 6,000 Christians singing to Jesus. That is an incredible, beautiful gift. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. It can be a taste of heaven. But those things can have a blinding effect on us if we are not careful. They can cry out, this is significant. This is big. This is powerful. This is worth giving your life to. Now, I've preached to some pretty large crowds before, and that can be a rush for a preacher. You feel like, wow, I can get used to this. It feels more significant to humans, more meaningful to preach the gospel to a thousand people than it does to preach to a room of ten. Okay? Why is that? That's tragic. When that happens in your heart, that's tragic that it feels more significant to preach to a bigger crowd than to a smaller crowd. It's the same gospel. It's the same Jesus. Big crowds, amazing productions of human talent and ability, they're not where we see the power of God at its mightiest. We see the power of God unfurled in its greatest intensity and the weakness of Christ dying and disarming the devil by his death. So, as a church, we want to make much of Jesus and his cross. We are a small church with a big Jesus, a big gospel. And I just want to warn you as we close maybe this isn't your struggle. I know I've struggled with it throughout the course of my life. Let us beware of being consumed or obsessed with or just really influenced. Overly influenced by one man or one camp of people, even if it's a really good group. Friends, the wonderful thing about being consumed with Jesus and his gospel alone is that the very gospel we embrace actually works against elevating humans and their tribes to almost godlike status. Because when somebody rightly preaches the true gospel, they've got to preach that they're a sinner. And they're in desperate need of it. When somebody really preaches the real Jesus, they've got to preach that they are weak. And they need him. Preaching the cross puts both the preacher and the learner at the same level. At the foot of the cross on their knees. Asking Jesus for forgiveness and help every day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the power of the cross that turns the wisdom of the world on its head and that unites male and woman, weak and strong, slave and free, every tribe, every nation united at the foot of the cross in our desperate need for our sins to be forgiven. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit Would stir up our hearts this morning with a love for Jesus Christ. May we be in awe at the cross of Christ by which we, through which we, have gained access into Your presence, Lord Jesus. Please be our everything. In Your name, I pray. Amen.